Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, searching for the lost dead of the First World War. Whether the Spartans were really as good as their legend. A brief history of motion. How Mussolini's Italy shaped British, Irish and American writers. And to end the show, we look at the Finnish-Soviet Winter War and why it proved a hollow victory for Stalin. Last week, we brought you The Tudors in Love, find out how the Marquis de Lafayette became the hero of two worlds and discuss the making of the Anglo-Irish Agreement. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with The Searchers, the quest for the lost of the First World War. By the end of the First World War, the whereabouts of more than half a million British soldiers were unknown. Most were presumed dead, lost forever under the battlefields of northern France and Flanders. And a new book brings together the extraordinary moving accounts of those who dedicated their lives to the search for the missing. The book is called... The Searchers, The Quest for the Lost of the First World War. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing. The author is Robert Sackville-West. And Robert, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It is extraordinary to think about it. A few months after the end of the First World War, we have more than half a million British soldiers uh, whose whereabouts were still unknown. It is, and I think that it was a profound sort of psychic shock for the nation, not just the scale of the slaughter, but the the um, lack of uh, closure, in a way, that these half a million people whose whereabouts were unknown posed for the bereaved. Um, and uh, they these people kept on searching in various ways for their lost ones. And some of those stories are incredibly moving. They're all incredibly moving. And it's their stories that began in 1918 and continue right up to, to the present. Talk to me about Rudyard Kipling, because uh, his son died in the war. Well, his son, um, John, was killed in uh, September 1915. And like thousands of other parents, uh, Rudyard Kipling and his wife Carrie would not at first believe that their son um had been killed, and they hoped against hope that he'd been um, uh, taken prisoner and would have been discovered months later in a German prisoner of war camp. And they kept on searching um, uh, for him and uh, bombarding the ambassadors of neutral nations for news of John. And it was only in 1919, a year after the end of the First World War, that they finally accepted that John must be dead. And then they spent the next uh, two decades uh, trying to find his grave. And uh, they never did, although 60 years after Rudyard Kipling's death, the uh, grave of John Kipling was finally identified. Um, And so uh, eventually the quest uh, for John's whereabouts uh, was uh, resolved. And some very moving, powerful, poignant stories and some very quirky, unusual stories as well. Talk to me about Emily Coston, who who lost her fiancé during the war. Well, that is um, an extraordinary um, uh, story. Um, uh, Emily Coston's um, fiancé was... uh, 
killed at Passchendaele uh, in uh, 1917. And every other year after the end of the war, she would go to uh, his grave uh, uh, near Ypres, uh, to, 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 as, as many others did, to, on pilgrimage, really, um, uh, to mourn at the grave of her lost fiancé. And on many of these occasions, she would bump into the same person, um, also beside the grave. And eventually, not until um, 15 years after his death, she you know, got into conversation with this, um, this person. And this person turned out to be a German garage proprietor called Hans Klutzen. And over the course of the conversation, it transpired um, that um, Hans Klutzen had in fact killed her fiancé in ferocious hand-to-hand trench fighting at Passchendaele in 1917, and haunted by this encounter, would visit every year after the end of the war the grave of the uh, man whom he had killed. And uh, this couple, Emily and Hans, eventually uh, discovered that their interests went beyond, beyond, you know, interest in George Bernard Shaw and Shakespeare, whom they also discussed, discussed and also obviously the, uh, the, the dead um, uh, fiancé. And um, in 1932, at the end of 1932, they got married. Really extraordinary. And... It's, you can see the desperate lengths that some people went to to try and contact their loved ones or, or connect with their loved ones, including going to spiritualists and, and trying to make contact with them beyond the grave. Well, yes. Um, in the same year as John Kipling was killed, same month even, September 1915, a uh, young man called uh, Raymond Lodge uh, was also killed. And whereas... Rudyard Kipling sort of scoured the battlefields, really, of uh, northern France for uh, the grave of his son, John. Oliver Lodge, Raymond's father, turned to uh, spiritualism to uh, contact his son, Raymond. And Oliver Lodge was a very, very distinguished physicist, and uh, he uh, had, in fact, um, uh, was a pioneer of... um, wireless telegraphy and a founding principal of Birmingham University, a man of science and of reason. But he uh, turned to spiritualism and in particular to a a medium called Gladys Osborne Leonard. And during seances, he contacted um, or claimed to contact uh, his son Raymond um, and wrote a best-selling surprise, best-selling book, about this called uh, Raymond or Life After Death, uh, which resonated with thousands of um, other parents who had um, uh, lost their sons and also turned to, to spiritualism for some sort of reassurance. Of course, today and in recent decades, they've had the advantage of DNA profiling to try and find the remains. What impact has that made on the search to to recover and identify and honour those who, who were lost? Well, one of the extraordinary things about the search is that it has continued and it has never lost 
its uh, fascination for many uh, families. But what has uh, transformed their quest is, as you say, uh, DNA. And um, every year, uh, about 50 uh, sets of human remains turn up in the uh, former battlefields of France and um, uh, Flanders, and every attempt is made to identify them. And because of uh, uh, forensic techniques, including DNA, this is uh, often possible. Um, and in particular, there was a very, very big archaeological project that began in 2009 when um, 250 uh, soldiers were discovered in mass graves um, at a place called um, Fromel. And of these 250 uh, soldiers who were unearthed, um, uh, to date, 166 of those soldiers have actually been identified uh, by name due to um, uh, DNA samples taken from their living descendants. Well, Robert, it really is such a powerfully poignant, sad, tragic Uh, And it's a story that still has so much relevance for so many people. The book is called The Searchers, The Quest for the Lost of the First World War. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing. The author, Robert Sackville-West. And Robert, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you very much. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The last stand at Thermopylae made the Spartans legends in their own time, famous for their toughness, stoicism and martial prowess. But was this reputation earned? Well, a new book paints a very different picture of Spartan warfare, one that was punctuated by frequent and heavy losses. The book is called The Bronze Lie, Shattering the Myth of Spartan Warrior Supremacy. It's published in hardback by Osprey Publishing. The author is Mike Cole. And Mike, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So let's talk about the legend of of Spartan uh, warrior supremacy. Was it a legend? And if it was a legend, how did it become such a, a part of, of the ancient world and indeed part of the modern world? Well, so it absolutely is a legend. Um, and it is a legend uh, that it, it, it's not just unique to the Spartans. There is a concept called Praetorianism in the world. Um, and we ascribe... Uh, sort of not just um, martial prowess, but ethical prowess uh, to military elites. You see this in lionization of U.S. Navy SEALs or or the British SAS. Um, And the truth is, is that while there are some uh, things to be praised for, in the end, human beings are human beings. I've certainly served uh, with uh, American special forces in Iraq. And the reality of it is, is that no matter how well-trained or elite you are, you make mistakes you get scared, you run from fights, these things, uh, these things all happen. Um, as to how it, this uh, legend specifically started for the Spartans, the only honest answer to this is, and it's an answer that a lot of historians have, a trouble, have trouble admitting, is that we don't know. Um, there's a great theory uh, by historian Tom Holland in his review of the uh, film 300, which really helped perpetuate the legend in modern culture, that it was the uh, Athenian uh, general and famous spin doctor Themistocles, who in the wake of the defeat at Thermopylae, and it was a disastrous defeat in an effort to keep the Greeks from surrendering wholesale to the Persians, he had to recast that defeat as a glorious suicide mission 
a defeat that was more powerful and prominent for the Greek cause than any victory, and that this effort at spin plugged into human insecurity and the tendency of human beings to want to have a model of how they can improve themselves, and that really grew legs and took off. And it also helps by the fact that the Spartans uh, were a people who wanted, above all, to be mysterious and didn't write about themselves, or at least that writing does not survive to us outside of epigraphy. So this process of othering and lionizing the other uh, really, uh, really grew from that uh, from that fertile soil. And it's interesting what you've explored is the military history and all of these battles that were defeats that really haven't been examined before, which really put a lie to the to the myth of the the supremacy of the Spartans in battle. Yes, uh, you know, and the thing is, I, I want to point out that this idea that the Spartans weren't all they cracked up to be isn't unique to me. Um, this whole project was launched by my reading an amazing article by Professor Sarah Bond of the University of Iowa in a sadly now defunct um, journal called Eidolon. What I did do, I think that that um, I don't want to I don't want to overstep my bounds and claim it's never been done, but I don't know that it's been done in the popular press. Is just keep score. The reality of it is is that we have sources and oftentimes multiple sources that document Sparta's military record pretty extensively in all conditions, on land and sea, at night, during the day, on bad ground, good ground, skirmishes, set-piece battles. So let's look. If, if, if the myth is that they never lost and they never surrendered, we should be able to check that against the facts. And in the center of that book is a, is a down scorecard, right, that just lays out the wins and losses. Um, and when you look at it, the answer is exactly what I said at the beginning of the show. They're not better than anyone else, and they're also not worse than anyone else. They are relentlessly average. And I suppose that explains why Sparta wasn't the dominant state in Greece uh, for long periods, that uh, if they really were so brilliant and so dominant and and so much superior, uh, we probably wouldn't have heard of Athens or Athens would have been very much a a subordinate state. Yes, and and, uh, when you visit Greece today... uh Look, Sparta is certainly uh, a great city. It's, it's certainly a good time, but it, it can't hold a candle to Athens, which is certainly the crown jewel in, 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 uh, of Greece. And yes, uh, even Thucydides, uh, the famous uh, Athenian historian, uh, who is a major source for us, not just about ancient Greek uh, history, but Sparta as well, says pretty plainly, hey, if you, if you walked around Sparta, you would have no idea. Um, that these people had ever been uh, been that great. Do you think the myth matters, and especially today in the 21st century, or is there a, a toxic undercurrent in the way some people use the myth of, of, of Spartan supremacy? Yes, I think the myth matters extremely. It's incredibly important for exactly that reason you said. Praetorianism in general, but particularly Spartan Praetorianism, this, this tendency to kind of inflate a myth of, of who people were is really used by the worst elements of the far right. Um, mind you, I'm not, uh, I certainly make no secret about my leftism, but I'm not a far leftist. I certainly believe there's lots of room for intercourse and negotiation and discussion between political lefts and rights around the world. I'm talking about the most extreme and often violent elements of the far right. You know, generational identity in France, um, the Oath Keepers here in the United States. These are you know, this is really extreme organizations. And I really think since the uh, Trumpism in 2015 to 2016 and the sort of corresponding rise of right-wing movements around the world, this use of Spartan iconography and the Thermopylae legend in particular has just grown out of all proportion. 
And um, it's really important if we're going to defang uh, these movements to speak the truth um, about who the Spartans were. Very good. Well, the book is called The Bronze Lie, Shattering the Myth of Spartan Warrior Supremacy, published in hardback by Osprey Publishing. The author is Mike Cole. And Mike, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Our society has been shaped by the car in so many different ways, many of which are so familiar that we no longer notice them. Why does red mean stop and green mean go? Why do some countries drive on the left and some on the right? And what might travel in a post-car world look like? Well, all of these questions and more are explored in a wonderful new book, A Brief History of Motion, From the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing, and I'm delighted to welcome the author, Tom Standage, uh, to the show tonight. Tom, you're very welcome. Hello, it's great to be here. Well, let's begin with that first question of why red means stop and green means go, because what's fascinating is that it did not necessarily always mean that. No. So green has certainly changed meaning. Let's start with the red, though. Um, What happened with red was that um, it was originally a warning colour used for shipping. Um, So there was a lighthouse that was being constructed on the east coast of England that was quite close to another lighthouse. And it was important that they were given different colours so that ships wouldn't muddle them up. And so the engineer was actually one of the Stevensons uh, who was working on this, uh, did a whole load of experiments to figure out which colour glass uh, allowed the most light through. And it turned out to be red. And we asked We also know today um, through our understanding of the physics of light that red is, in fact, the colour that um, penetrates uh, the longest distance. This is why sunsets are red. Um, So that lighthouse was made red and red became associated with a warning colour with ships. And then ships started carrying warning lights on them um, so that you could tell that they were that they were there. And uh, and those those lights were were then red. Um, And then that ends up being used on railways. And on railways, they use red as a warning light to mean stop. And they used white to mean go. And they used a green to mean caution. Um, But the problem with that was that if the red or the green filter, the piece of glass, fell off the light, it would be white. And then that would mean go. And this did happen and it did cause accidents. It also meant that if you saw another light that was completely unrelated to the railway, like in a house or something, and you you might mistake it for a go light. And so that was swapped and green was used to mean go and white was used to mean caution instead. And that way, if either the red or the green light failed and turned white, it would mean caution instead of go. Um, And so uh, that was done around the end of the uh, of the 19th century. And that meant that when traffic lights were introduced for cars in the early 20th century, those colours were then borrowed from the railways and red means stop and green means go. And we then introduced amber to mean caution instead of white. The book is a wonderful collection of anecdotes and facts and like curiosities. Uh, Tell me about this remarkable uh, pioneer and inventor, Bertha Benz, and the road trip that she took. Absolutely. So Bertha Benz was the wife of Carl Benz, who built what we now consider to be the first modern car, uh, the Benz Motorwagen, in 1886. And she had helped him develop it. She had helped fund it. She had been testing it with him in the yard outside their house. And he seemed sort of reluctant to try and push it as a, a product that was ready to go to market. And she wanted to prove to him that it was, in fact, 
um, ready to go. It was a useful product in the form that it was in, and he didn't need to go on tinkering with it. And the way she proved this to him was quite unusual. Basically, one morning, without telling him, she took the prototype car and their two teenage sons, and she drove to see her mother about 60 miles away. So this is the first ever road trip. And um, this was a cross-country. Um, obviously, this is a petrol-powered vehicle, and there were no filling stations in those days. But the um, you could actually buy petrol or gasoline from pharmacies in those days. It was used as a household solvent and cleaning fluid. So she was able to stop and um, and refuel when she had to. And in fact, the pharmacy that she stopped at now has a plaque outside saying that it's the, the first filling station in the world. And it took her the whole day to drive to her mother's. And she then sent a telegram to hus her husband um, saying, I've got here. And um, and then she drove back a couple of days later. And on the in the course of this trip, um, she realized that the lowest gear in the car was not really powerful enough to get up hills. She had to get her sons to hop out and push. The brakes also needed improving. So she stopped at a cobbler's and had some leather added over the brake pads so that they gripped a lot better. Um, and so she came back and said, look, this is a perfectly useful invention now. Um, I've got a few suggestions about how you might improve the brakes and so on. And this gave him the confidence to show the vehicle at a great big sort of engineering expedition. A few weeks later, he won the gold medal. He was in all the papers. And at that point, you know, suddenly everybody was interested in this new idea of the automobile. And uh, so Bertha Benz and her pioneering road trip really got the, the wheels turning, you might say. Nowadays, of course, we're so conscious about the environment and about climate change and it's interesting all the focus on electric cars but it's interesting to look back and extraordinary to see that uh, this isn't a new phenomenon and electric cars were once very popular. Yes they were if you look at the 1890s um, then electric cars were being sold in about equal numbers to steam-powered cars and gas-powered cars in the United States um, and it really could have gone any of those directions. Actually, steam was a bit rubbish because you had to start the boiler sort of two or three hours before you wanted to go out. So that wasn't very convenient. But electric cars um, really were taken seriously in those days. The problem then, as now, is that when you head out onto the open road in an electric car, you can't be sure that you're going to be able to find somewhere to recharge it. And that's still a problem today. And it still makes people reluctant to buy electric cars now. And obviously, that was even more of a problem um, 100 years ago or 120 years ago, because, um, you know, people may not even have had electric mains into their house at that point. Um, so you couldn't even stop at a friend's house and recharge because, you know, not everybody would have had electricity. Um, but yes, in, the, in, in 1897, the best selling car in America was, in fact, an electric car. There were electric taxis in New York City in the late 1890s. And it was uh, at the time you know, uh, um, internal combustion engines were quite unreliable. It was only when they became more reliable um, that uh, that people said, you know what, this is the way to go because we could buy gasoline all over the place. Um, and, you know, this allows us the freedom of the open road. And electric cars were not really, you know, they didn't give you that sense of freedom. You always have this nagging worry, what today we call range anxiety. Well, Tom, congratulations on the book. Some Absolutely brilliant stories, anecdotes, unexpected uh, pieces of information. And I think lots there uh, for our readers to enjoy. The book is called A Brief History of Motion, From the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next, published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing. The author, Tom Standage. And Tom, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Why did poets from the United States, Britain and Ireland gather in a small town in Italy during the early years of Mussolini's regime? 
These writers were, or became, some of the most famous poets of the 20th century, including our own W.B. Yeats. So a new book explores what brought them together and what they hoped to achieve. The book is called The Poets of Rapallo, How Mussolini's Italy Shaped British, Irish and US Writers. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Lauren Arrington. And Lauren, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks, Patrick. It's great to, great to be here. So let's begin with our own W.B. Yeats and his interest in Mussolini because he seems to become a little disillusioned with Mussolini's Italy once he actually got to see it close up. That's right. He, um, his interest starts in the early 20s um, and it's fed by his disillusionment with Irish politics in the wake of the Civil War. Um, so he's looking at the way that Mussolini is creating kind of cohesive national culture centered around an authoritarian figure, which appeals to Yates because it's what he thinks that Ireland needs after what he sees as this period of disorder. Um, and the historian Mike Cronin has written exceptionally well about that, as well as um, Fergal McGarry has written about Yates's interest in the blue shirts. Um, but both um, Mike and Fergal write about how Yates's interest in Mussolini falls away um, pretty soon uh, afterwards. But I found that when um, Yates gets to Rapallo, he goes there because he's ill. Um, he needs a warm climate to recuperate. Um, he reinvigorates his friendship with Ezra Pound, who's uh, devoted to Mussolini as a political leader. Um, it's not that his interests dissipates. It's that it changes. So he becomes less interested in Mussolini as a human political figure and more interested in the way that culture is operating in the regime. And he thinks about ways that he can bring that culture back to Ireland. And it's interesting, the relationship between Ezra Pound and W.B. Yeats and kind of the, the gathering of visiting writers they they bring over to Rapallo and the discussions that they have, because I think people disassociated themselves from Ezra Pound after the Second World War. But before that, it's, it's very much an engagement with democracy, fascism and all of these uh, issues of the time. That's right. And being in Rapallo and being so close to Pound is really tricky territory for these writers to negotiate um, after the Second World War. But right, right through um, the, you know, the rest of the 20th century, um, they kind of tangle with Pound's importance to their writing and um, the way that Pound's politics may have in fact shaped some of their own thinking. So one of the key figures there is an English poet. He preferred to think of himself as a Northumbrian poet called Basil Bunting that was a conscientious objector in the First World War um, and uh, was very outspoken uh, pacifist. But he finds himself in Rapallo working very closely with Pound on a number of projects that are sponsored by the regime, um, as well as working with Pound on his, his poetic. So when Bunting is reflecting on his life in the late 1960s, um, he's thinking about Pound, who's of course fallen into extreme disrepute, because after Pound is released from a mental institution, where he was held for, um, for uh, over a decade, um, Pound returns to Italy and he gives um, the fascist salute on, on the ship as he, uh, as he sails into, into harbour in Genoa. So, um, so Pound has all of this freight um, around, around him and Bunting has to find a way to deal with that. And he talks about perhaps having himself 
and a friend of his, Louis Zukowski, having an influence over pound rather than pound influencing them. But I found, of course, that um, that Bunting goes a little too far in that direction, that pound is actually very important to what he's doing poetically, as well as the way that Bunting is interacting politically with the regime. Uh, Thomas McCreevy, the Irish poet, uh, also visited them at Rapallo. And uh, what's fascinating about your work is that you discovered a new uh, cache of poems by McCreevy. So how significant are these poems and what new insight do we get into his relationships? It's a very interesting cache of poems that I found in the Yates papers in the National Library, um, and they had no attribution to them. They said on the envelope, poems in the style of Ezra Pound. Um, and I recognized them immediately when I opened the envelope that these are poems by McGreevy. Um, and they're early poems, but they're important because they show how uh, central, not just WB, but also George Yates was to developing McGreevy's career as a poet. McGreevy would send his poetry to George and she would comment on it, sometimes not even mentioning to WB, um, and discuss the evolution of of McGreevy's work with him. Um, And WB came in quite late in the game. um, McGreevy and George were sharing poems long before WB even realized that McGreevy had aspirations as a poet. So what this cache of poems does is it shows us not only the kind of modernist poetic influences that McGreevy's under, Pound is one of them, and also Eliot, but that George Yates is um, is a key figure in shaping his poetry early on. Very good. Well, it's a fascinating new book, The Poets of Rapallo, How Mussolini's Italy Shaped British, Irish and US Writers, published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Lauren Arrington. And Lauren, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Sure, thanks for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Harald Sigurdsson burst into history as a teenaged youth in a Viking battle from which he escaped with little more than his life and a thirst for vengeance. But from these humble origins, he became one of Norway's most legendary kings. And his story has been told in a new book, The Last Viking, the true story of King Harald Hardrada, published in hardback by Osprey Publishing. The author is Don Holloway. And Don, you're very welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us about Harold and I suppose how he did emerge into becoming king and and becoming such a significant king? Well, he was born into minor royalty in uh, Norway. At that time, Norway was a profusion of petty little kings. Uh, his older brother, Olaf, had attempted to unify all of Norway, but he was he was a rather tyrannical king and ended up being run out of the country. Uh, Harold stayed behind uh, until Olaf returned to try and take the country over again and then joined him, uh, joined his army as they attempted to take over the and reunite the country. Uh, they ended up fighting a huge battle with the people who still objected to Olaf. They fought at Stiklestad in the northern part of Norway in 1015, it was a unique fight in history because it actually took place under a partial eclipse of the sun, a near total eclipse of the sun. It was a night fight in the middle of the day, which uh, certainly would have been amazing to the people of that age. I mean, the Christians who were in the fight, that was almost a thousand years exactly after the crucifixion of Christ when the same thing was said to have happened. And as far as the pagans, the Viking, the Odin worshippers in the crowd, 
they would have thought it was one-eyed Odin looking down on them from the sky. So this was a, a mystical, magical event for them, and everyone who was taking part in the battle knew it was going to be a turning point in history. Olaf was killed in the battle, and Harold was severely wounded and uh, only managed to escape with his life, ended up going into exile. And from there on, uh, his life's ambition was to return and, and do what Olaf had not done, which was rewrite uh, Norway under his own command. And it really is an extraordinary life story. And what really stands out when you look at Harald's experience as king is that he's not just based in Scandinavia. He's traveling all around the world, fighting all across the world. Russia, Constantinople, Sicily, the Holy Lands. Uh, he's very much international in his outlook. He is very much so. Uh, when my agent contacted me and about writing this book and said that Vikings are hot right now because of the TV show Vikings, uh, he said, do you know any stories about Vikings? And I said, let me tell you a story. <laughs> the first time I read about Harold, it was like, wow, what a life this guy led. Like you said, he was he was a world traveler, uh, fought just about everywhere he went, and uh, you know, just had such an amazing series of adventures that his life really reads almost like a fantasy novel or something. It's uh, really incredible. And he also seems to have been very popular with the ladies as well, that uh, he married a princess, but he also had quite a few other uh, romances. He did. He was, uh, he, according to the sagas, he caught the eye of the Empress Zoe of the Byzantine em- Empire. So Harold was a member of the Varangian Guard, which was an all-Viking unit that the uh, Byzantine emperors uh, used as, uh, they employed them as enforcers and bodyguards and uh, an elite combat unit. And in, in, in that function, as a member of the court, Harold caught the eye of Zoe, the Byzantine empress at the time. Uh, she liked him physically, but also he came in handy with all the intrigues. Her life came into danger. He ended up saving her life and uh, was within a sword swing of becoming the emperor himself. If he had not been a Viking, he probably would have been the uh, a Byzantine emperor. But as things turned out, the romance went sour and Harold had to escape Constantinople uh, with his life. Talk to me about the sources, because I think what's fascinating as well is that there seems to be such a, a wide range of different sources that you've brought together in a very, in a very entertaining way. And that it's, it, shows how, uh, it shows how, again, the international dimension to this story and its reach. Yeah, I started out, my main source is Snorri Sturluson, who was an Icelandic writer writing about 200 years after the fact. He had put together King Harold's saga, which is a very much pro-Harold document. And, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of historians take it with a grain of salt, and I did too. But Harold was famous almost wherever he went. There were, he was written about in uh, Russia, he was written about in Byzantium. Uh, he was quite famous the world over, and taking all those accounts, the Byzantine writers, the Viking, uh, the Norse sagas, and the Russian chronicles, putting them all together, I was able to weave, you know, a whole cloth out of, uh, out of all these various threads. Uh, he, as I say, he was quite famous, and it uh, wasn't hard to find a lot of uh, stories about him to put together. And he thought he had a claim, he certainly asserted a claim to the throne in England as well. And uh, 1066, a famous day in English history and a famous year. And that was the year uh, when it all came horribly unstuck for him. 
Yes, uh, as I said before, his goal was to uh, not only he wanted to reunite Norway, but also to reunite the old North Sea Empire of King Canute the Great, which had, had been uh, a few decades before his time. King Canute ruled, ruled over England and Denmark and Norway, and uh, it was uh, always Harold's aspiration to put that back together again. It had sort of fallen apart after Canute's death. So when uh, Harold returned to Norway, his nephew, Olaf's son, Magnus, was in charge at that time. And uh, Harold basically went to him and said, we can either fight for the kingdom or I'm a very rich man from all the money that I've embezzled down in, in Constantinople. I'll buy half of the kingdom from you. And Magnus decided that was the uh, way to go. So they were actually co-rulers for a couple of years until Magnus passed away of natural causes. At that point, uh, Harold wanted to conquer Denmark and make reunite that with Norway and fought uh, basically a 15, 16-year war to try and do that and never did succeed against King Svein, who ruled in Denmark. And about the time that uh, Harold gave up on that aspiration, uh, it turned out that the last third of the North Sea Empire, uh, England, was having its own political crisis with uh, the recent accession of Harold II, God Winston, to that throne, and that was under a lot of dispute. Uh, the English King Harold's brother, Tostig, sailed over to Norway to enlist Harold, the Norwegian King Harold's help in taking the kingdom from his brother. And since Harold had not been able to conquer Denmark, he decided England would be a good substitute, so he signed on for the mission, and that's when they all went over to England in 1066. Well, that's a fascinating story. It's called The Last Viking, The True Story of King Harald Herdrada. It's published in Hardback by Osprey Publishing. The author is Don Holloway. And Don, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks again. I'm uh, glad to be here. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. On the 30th of November 1939, the Soviet Union attacked Finland, beginning what became known as the Finnish-Soviet Winter War. And a new book explores how the Finnish army thwarted the plans of the sizable Soviet forces assembled against it before finally being forced to concede. The book is called The Finnish-Soviet Winter War, 1939-1940, to Stalin's Hollow Victory. It's published in paperback by Osprey as part of the campaign series. And I'm delighted to welcome the author David Murphy back to the show tonight. David, you're very welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Patrick. Good to be here. Let's set the context for this war. November 1939, why did did the Soviet Union invade Finland? Yes, I mean, it's an interesting one. I mean, it's it's late November 1939, Quite often, this is this is lost against the wider backdrop of World War Two. Uh, your listeners will remember that you know September thirty nine, the Germans go into Poland. We see the outbreak of World War Two. Uh, the Soviets then go into the eastern part of Poland, so they, they basically divvy up Poland between themselves. Um, France and Britain are at war with Germany, but we go into that peculiar phony war phase where there's not much happening in the West. Now, Stalin, being a reasonably paranoid individual, is looking at the geopolitical scene. He wants to put buffer space between himself and the Germans, despite the fact that he's supposed to have a a non-aggression pact. Uh, We often look upon Stalin as being uh, surprised when the Germans actually invade him in 1941. But he is reasonably paranoid about German activity. So he pressures the Baltic states, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, into mutual security packs. So he basically places them and Soviet army units in those Baltic states between him 
and Germany. And then he's looking at the, the kind of the wider context. And essentially, he knows that basically there are relations between Finland and Germany. So he basically wants to pressure them into an alliance with him, okay, to put a further buffer state between himself and basically control that end of the Baltic Sea. Uh, so throughout kind of like, you know, 1939, increasing pressure and demands being put on the, the, the Finns to give up territory, um, basically key strategic territory for them to allow uh, basically the Russians to have that kind of like buffer zone. And when that does not happen, it basically diplomatic relations have broken off at the end of uh, November. The Finns are desperately playing for time but and hoping that the Allies will come to their assistance. But none of that happens. And essentially then they are at war, they are officially at war then from 30th of November 1939. What's extraordinary about the conflict is that looking at the, the military might of both countries, you would assume that given the, the, the superiority the Soviet Union have in terms of tanks and aircraft, that it would have been a rapid, swift victory, but it doesn't go according to plan at all. No, nothing goes according to plan in this for the, for the, the Soviets. I mean, it's generally accepted now because of the numbers game, they are reasonably lackadaisical in terms of how they, they tee this up. Uh, you know, Finland has an army, uh, all in all, everybody all in of about 300,000. That's kind of like regulars, reserves, conscripts, volunteers. Uh, there's a women's unit in there as well. So it's about 300,000. In the initial phase alone, the Soviets deploy 450,000. And they'll eventually big that up to 750,000. Uh, when you look at the numbers of tanks involved, the, the, the Soviets have thousands. The Finns have 30. In terms of Aeroplanes, the Finns have about 60. Again, the Soviets have thousands. Um, and the Soviets are fully expectation that this will all take place in a couple of weeks. They've scheduled the victory parade to happen in Helsinki uh, to coincide with Stalin's birthday, which is later on in 1939. Um, and the, you know, some of the, when you look at some of the planning, planning is very uh, slapdash. But, I mean, some incredible things, like they sent their guys into what's going to be the Finnish winter without proper winter clothing. Uh, but they also send along brass bands for the, the, the victory parade. They're so certain that the Finns will just crumble. Uh, and it all becomes very messy, and all the, the plant derails very, very quickly. And you explore exactly what went wrong in terms of this combination of a bit of the weather, the terrain, the Finnish tactics. You know, there was a, the defence, there was a lot of factors at play that, that made things uh, so advantageous for the Finns and so difficult for the Soviets. When you basically look at various things, the country, the terrain, the weather, they're all force multipliers for the Finns. They allowed them to use the terrain to break up the big Soviet columns coming in, uh, chop them up into little bits and destroy them in certain areas. Um, they also, th- I mean, things like, you know, like the air power, the Soviets technically have overwhelming air power. But the weather, especially as the, the year drags on, quite often they're in, they're in whiteout conditions. So the air power can't actually make itself felt. Um, and some very poor leadership on the Soviet side, some very poor planning and scheduling in, the, in, the, in terms of how formations are being put together. And it's totally reversed on the, on, on the, on the Finnish side. Uh, the Finns are incredibly intelligent, incredibly tenacious about how to go about this. Uh, and it settles down into a very difficult war. Um, when you look at it geographically, if people look at a map, there's that there's a peninsula, the Karelian Peninsula, that essentially joins uh, Finland to Russia. That area is heavily fortified. 
And in that area, basically, the war develops as you can imagine. It's, it's like the opening scene of Private Ryan or whatever. It, that there, there are Soviet attacks in on the Mannerheim line, physical positions on the ground. And that's terribly attritive, terribly attritive for the Russians. But then further north, the, there's more open space. But the roads in through the forested areas, the roads in past all the various lakes, allow the Finns to ambush and break up the Soviets at the, as the steamroller through. Um, the initial success story for the Russians is up way up in the north, in around Patsamo. They put in an amphibious landing. They take the area. They push and take control. That's high up in the Arctic Circle. Once winter comes in, it's perpetual darkness, and they find themselves fighting to survive uh, and also then kind of the, the victims of kind of guerrilla tactics from the Finns. So between terrain and weather, it all breaks down to a very uh, difficult and messy business for the Soviets. And there's some wonderfully quirky bits as well, including the fact that the Finns had saunas for their, for their troops in the, <laughs> at the front line. Yeah, I mean, it, if it wasn't so, if it wasn't so such a brutal conflict and if there wasn't so much horror in it, it, it is also, it's all, almost comedic. On one side, you have Russians huddling around fires, struggling to survive without proper clothing. Uh, when their pack animals die, eating the pack animals and really, really struggling. Uh, on the other side of the line, the, the smaller army who technically shouldn't even still be in the competition. They're still organizing hot tents for their, their guys to rest, still bringing up hot rations. And bizarrely, the guys will also construct uh, a sauna is just behind the front line and will have when they come off duty they will go into a sauna condition to clean themselves and also just heat up um, so it's kind of uh, yes it's very bizarre it's very bizarre and you even I suppose see the legacy of that conflict in more recent times a few months ago Finland uh, put in an order for 64 F-35 fighter jets and, and you probably see uh, the memory of this conflict and later conflicts uh, still in the in the memory in the political memory Finland goes into a stage, I mean, it is ultimately beaten in this war and is forced into a treaty situation. Um, the treaty, when you look at it, is actually quite lenient when you consider the casualties that the Russians have suffered in this. Um, but then they will go into, they will ally themselves with Germany, what's known as the Continuation War from 1941 onwards. And then at the end of World War II, they will then start to fight Germans to get them out of the country as well. So it's a very bitter cycle of conflict for them. Uh, apart from the casualties in the war, there's a lot of uh, refugees, there's a lot of internal displacement, uh, a lot of civilians actually suffering this. Um, Post-World War II, they never joined NATO. They, Finland is still a neutral country, but it is not neutral in, in the Irish sense. So like, you know, in Ireland, we're neutral and we expect, you know, we're leprechauns and nobody will harm us. In Finland, they actually have an ever-present threat on their border. Uh, and during the Cold War, they took care to defend themselves against that. And they still do. They still do. They, they, they buy, they maintain a, a sizable army, sizable navy, a very sizable air force, significant air force. And they still, you know, relations have... Uh, been better, I would say, in the last ten years with the, with the, with Russia, but they are still aware that there could be problems, so they're prepared to defend themselves. Okay, well, the book is called "The Finnish Soviet Winter War, 1939 to 1940: Stalin's Hollow Victory." It's published in paperback by Osprey Publishing. Another wonderful work by the historian David Murphy. And David, thanks so much for joining us tonight to tell us all about it. Not a problem. My pleasure. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be looking at the life and work of 
Ernest Hemingway and we'll be finding out how he became a giant of American literature and also his love of Cuban rum. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history History. on News Talk.